my guest today, Eric Honda, uh, thanks for coming on. No uh, problem. My, Thank my you. guest, my student, um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu student now with us. Uh, how long have you been with, with us at Hard Drive? I'll be a year in That's June. That just blows my mind, man. Yeah. Like, it seems like you just came a few months ago. Um, yeah. You work in law enforcement? Yep, I'm you, a police officer. Um, tell me about before law enforcement. Tell me about your upbringing and kind of the experience, abbreviated, of course, okay. but like the important things in your life that led us to current, present day, where we're at right now. Uh, I grew up out in Washington, okay, right outside Seattle. So I was out there my whole life until I came out to college. Um, started wrestling at a really young age. And I knew once I kind of hit a certain age that like that was going to be my path. I, I was extremely obsessed and committed to the process of wrestling. So that was kind of, I was, wasn't the best student growing up and I figured, Same. figured that was my path to college. Mm -hmm. And when I was in high school out in Washington, there was only four schools that had wrestling. There was wow. a division two, II, division three II, and two uh, junior colleges. Okay. Well, Going into my senior year, the Division Two announced that they were cutting their program. The Division Three is where my freestyle club, we ended up training with them at kind of one of their facilities. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like they were going to cut their program within a year. So that was like, yeah, that's out. And then one of the junior colleges was like five, ten minutes away from my house. So we ended up going, we would go from our high school practice to the JUCO practice made some calls did some recruiting stuff and then i started getting recruited by a couple schools out here okay um ud university of butte gave me the best financial aid offer and they've I, had some good wrestlers too yeah um cole williams is a guy that used to train with us back I, in the cole day. cole started with me oh yeah yeah we're the same age that seems about it yeah i guess yeah. that seems about right yeah but he was one of the um i mean it's a long time ago we trained with cole but um i knew just looking at cole if he came out of University of Dubuque, because I hadn't heard about him before, and I was kind of naive yeah. to wrestling. Like, I just didn't know that much about it. Um, but I saw him, and I went, well, they're putting out some good wrestlers then. Uh, we started, when we started it in 02, 02, 03 was our first year there. It was a, our first, our coach's first year, John McGovern. He's mm -hmm. been there since then. But we were the first full team he is, they had in years. Like, wow. there are kind of on the, the decline and then even the university had a lot of issues and then they started really building back up to like you go to it now and i mean i we go to dubuque a lot and you drive around that campus and it looks like a, a small division one college yeah there's a lot of money and a lot of facilities there. some high schools now yeah look like colleges i've noticed it wasn't like that when we were there but uh they got they have this stuff now but uh so i came to college out here it's the first time I've ever been to Iowa. I flew in to start college. And what was what was the culture shift like? Was there any culture shift from where you where you grew up in like coming out here that you noticed right away? You're like, well, this is different. Uh yeah. I mean, growing up because uh, where I lived in Federal Way was right off I five. So you're you know, ninety thousand, eighty thousand, you know, people in our city, but it's just kind of like an extension. There's no like real each city out there is kind of just like an extension of the other. There's just like little into yeah, something else. There's like yeah. little boundaries, but it's all kind of just one big blah. Yeah. You know, and then coming out here to being like, Oh, this like, is a distinct city. And then you have distinct area country. I have to travel 20 minutes to go anywhere. And I, I joke, I joke with my brother cause my brother, 
drives into work. He lives in Seattle and he just drive into work and he's like, yeah, my drive's like 30, 40 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, but you're going like 10 miles. Like I drive 30, 40 minutes and I'm going 30 miles, 40 miles. (laughs) But, um, no, it was, it was different coming out here. Um, coming to the Midwest and, you know, like we knew our neighbors, Mm -hmm. we were friendly with our neighbors, but you, everyone worked somewhere else. You live here and you hop on I five and you can work anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, you know, no one worked in the city. So it was coming out here and seeing how friendly people were and like how concerned and caring people were about each other. It was kind of, that was a little off. You're trying to carjack me. Thrown off a little bit at first because it was like, whoa, yeah. people actually care about you. And like, what? why do you care about me? Yeah. There's kind of a Midwestern um, courtesy. Yeah. The yeah. common courtesy. And it is distinct because people are friendly elsewhere. Like, yep. you, go to, you got Southern hospitality. Yep. Like, you have, you have all of these. Uh, and I think what the message is is that people inherently are friendly. Although yes. there are some populaces that maybe that's not the case. I'm not going to point them out. But... Um, there is this very much like I'll hold the door open for you mm-hmm. um, uh, courtesy, this Midwestern values that uh, I won't ever leave. Like I'll travel around, but the yeah. people here I feel like are some of the most trustworthy and genuinely kind people that I've met in the yeah. United States. So. Like when my wife and I, you know, we, we started having kids and stuff and we kind of had the conversation of, you know, do we want to move? closer to you know my family or move closer to her family her family's from iowa mm-hmm. but it was kind of like well no you know i like i like it back home but i would rather raise my kids here you know my kids mm-hmm. know our neighbors our neighbors look after our house you know you look after and it's just like that courtesy that midwestern vibe is just that's an ideal i want to raise in my kids yeah even if they move off to somewhere else that they have that concept of community Mm-hmm. maybe they can take that community to a, you know, a metropolitan place that doesn't have that concept of community and then start bleeding that into that metropolitan place. You know, it's just, yeah. we can plant that with one. We can plant that with others. Well, I feel like um, there's even employers that outsource to, to the Midwest because, and, and I don't know if I'm talking out of my ass on this, but this is what I've heard that they, they look to the Midwest to harvest talent because you have people that are used to a very low uh, yeah. cost of living and that work really, really hard. Yeah. And that's it. So why wouldn't I go to the Midwest to get somebody to do a job when, you know, you know how those LA people act. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's all kinds of people in LA mad now. Like it's a city and not a long street. Uh, LA. I've been there a few times and that's, I like LA. It's, it's mind blowing when you, when you're driving down I five and you, or you're flying into LA and you just see lights yeah you don't see any like dark because like you know if you see dark you're like okay that's kind of like woods or that's natural and you're like where's where's the where's the dark at yeah you don't see anything it's just well it's lights. the thing that i thought about la when i was coming up and i didn't really know um the specifics or the neighborhoods or anything but i i thought that it was just a big city yeah and what i found out is it's a like you said it's a long chain of communities that kind of go along the coastline and it it's what is LA? Like if you live in LA, I would presume that you have to get very specific about where you live in LA to designate yourself. Um, so you moved to Iowa and then, um, what after that? 
what, what came um, here after college or after your experience there? What so I went to, went to school to become a teacher. Okay. Um, graduated from college, and I ended up getting a teaching job right away, special education teaching job right away. Um, I got a teaching job down in Clinton, Iowa, and that was that was an experience. Well, well, I mean, that's vague. Uh, <laughs> give, Clint, me the, give me the details. Clinton, Iowa has a very high generational poverty rate. Mm. And I've been around poverty from being in somewhat of a bigger city and then seeing it and going to that it was very eye-opening because you saw kids as young as, you know, I was working in sixth, seventh grade, and you saw kids even as young as that having no hope. Really? Because they've, but they've seen it. They've seen it in their parents. They've seen their grandparents, and they've all seen this cycle over yeah. and over again. And it's like, how are you six, you know, in sixth grade and not have hope? You never, know, it's it's never just had it's it. never it's, found it. Yeah, and it's mind blowing. You know, and that that was very eye opening to to experience that and work with that. And I bet. Um, so I did that for uh, I got that actually uh, half a year. Did that, and then I ended up getting a job in Dubuque, teaching in Dubuque. I did that for seven years, I think, seven, eight years, something like that. And then... Why'd you get out? I was uh, I was burning out a little bit, burning out of the process, burning out of kind of the situations I was dealing with. Um, I just kind of... I wasn't, I wasn't in a good headspace mentally. Did you feel limited? As a teacher? Yeah. Um, I was working with a lot of pretty extreme cases. And, oh, okay. you know, and you, it was kind of one of those situations where it was like, well, I can do so much from these hours. Mm-hmm. And then it's, that's all I have. You know, and then you have all these other outside agencies that are like, okay, well, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And I was like, well, nothing seems to be helping this child. You know, and it seems like everyone was pulling in their own direction, in their own thing. They want to do this, and they, they're the best, and they can do this. And I was like, well, I don't care. Like, I, I don't care. If you're the best, then let's do that. You have the best ideas? Let's do it. Let's just help the kids. Mm. And it was just seemed like there's too much of that. It's too many chiefs, not enough Indians. Too, would, would you say that there was too much focus on um, these different agencies claiming victory and not enough on the actual victory, the point? Of the yeah. process itself. Yeah. Like, and I, oh, I, we'll try my method because I think it works better. And it's like, well, I think the the main goal was lost on people. Mm. You know, what, what's the goal? You know, you have, you know, the medical field thinking that this is some sort of, they have to do something medically. And then you have education to say, we have to do this educationally. And I think the, the ideas were all lost. The main idea was lost. It was like, what, what can we break down to the, be the main idea of how, you know, this kid is at this point and in such level of crisis, and then we want to get him to be a functioning member. You know, I don't care if they're, you know, 1,600 on a, a SAT or whatever. You know, I just want them functioning. I want them mm-hmm. to be happy and functioning in society. And how do we get that? You know. Yeah, there's been a gripe in society about um, how the education system has mm-hmm. kind of compartmentalized the education process and tried to standardize it for a kid. Yes. Not taking into consideration the vast amount of variables in the development of the mind and uh, body of, of these kids. Do you fe- Did you feel like you got that vibe where there was just these cookie cutter type of solutions like to 
getting test scores up or whatever and not like a focus on how do we individually connect with each child. So when I was teaching was right in the prime of the no child left behind Mm. stuff. um, And we were hyper focused on test scores and to the point where like, you know, that's when you would have your list of schools, you know, these schools are the lowest performing schools. And we end, you know, the school I was working at ended up having, you know, extra uh, training, professional development because we were so low, low on the test score wise. And I was like, okay, well, yes, but what is cause, you know, what, what are some, what are some root causes here? You know, what, you know, look at where we were at. We were at a high level of, poverty we were at a high level of transient within the community you know so it's like we have all these other external factors and it was like okay you don't have a kid for the whole you know for a year or two to really work with a kid to build them up and you know educate them Mm -hmm. how do you you, yeah how do you measure the the success and growth intellectual growth of a child raised in an inner city as part of a cyclical generational poverty situation with somebody who lives in an upper class yeah. tutored doesn't make any sense. Yeah. There's no like human humanization of the process at all. It's just like, Oh, this is the standard. Yeah. And if you don't fit into it, we'll dump a bunch of money there or we'll, we'll kind of skirt the problem and ignore it. But that was the big gripe too. Well, and then had, it's cycled now because now it's cycling to, you know, the, you know, you had that, then you had the common core stuff where it was, <laughs> I, uh, I've seen some common core stuff. I think anyway, I don't know. The common core is, I like the concept and idea of the common core saying everyone should have this standard Mm -hmm. of how to do math, of how to do math. Yes. I like that idea because then we have a base standard. We say everyone should be right here, but I think what was lost was, okay, that's the, you know, that's the, the base. Why, why aren't we pushing people beyond that? Like, Hey, and who establishes get, the base? Yeah, and that's that's kind of where like, it got lost in the politics of it. And Math for me, when I was a kid, I hate math. I hate it. I love it scientifically because I know it explains everything. Mm-hmm. I just personally can't explain everything with math. But I know that things can be explained, and I know that um, the best math teachers that I've ever had um, worked with me for just a few weeks established what would work best for me yeah. and then taught me this method, even though they being good mathematicians knew two or three different ways to yep. conduct this. The worst math teachers I've ever had tried to teach me all three ways and didn't, didn't leave me with a single yeah. one that worked. So I could see common core being the response to that, but who sets that base? Yeah. What's the interpretation? What's the easiest for you? And does that work with my mind? I think when you're dealing with, the complexities, the social complexities, yep. the intellectual complexities, like you're talking about, you can't standardize anything. Yeah. And you know, even now my, my wife's involved in, she's a teacher now and it's, I'm seeing it, you know, at the education kind of from the outside, especially have, having a child in that, you know, the system now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, it's kind of, you see that peaks and valleys of, you know, how, you know, it was super hyper, on test scores and then it kind of dipped on the test scores and we're talking about common core. And then it's kind of, that's kind of going away to now, you know, this next phase of like these five plus five is what, well, if you can explain what five plus five is and do all these different explanations, it doesn't matter what you wrote down what five plus five is. It's just, how can you explain your thinking? Okay. I can, I can get behind the idea of... But that's of, not math, though. 
Yeah, that's, exactly. That's logic and reason, and you're not coming to a firm conclusion. That but if makes... we're if we're supposed to be teaching thinking, then yeah. let's teach thinking and philosophy. And, and, te- and teach that concept to a thirty year old person. Yes. Not a not a t- not to thirteen year old or something. Someone shit. whose brain is just developing and not have the ground roots of basics yet. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I feel like, um, and this is just my personal opinion. I feel like you could eradicate the Department of Education over a series of years. I don't think it serves much purpose outside of just this type of standardization um, and a, a way to allow federal money to slip out uh, into the education system. Um, take all that money that you've spent in, at the Department of Education, millions and millions of dollars, billions probably, uh, use it to take kids on sponsored travel. Have, I like that. <laughs> have them go somewhere safe, but yeah. somewhere that's going to show them that like, yeah, eh, you got it pretty good. And you, this is real perspective. This yeah. is like reality. This is what your life is going to have to deal with. And if you don't have to deal with this stuff in your life, you have to be aware that other people are dealing with this stuff in their life. S- boxing people up in a classroom in 2020 and going, you must learn this way yeah. and these facts and the, the story of America and the way we want the winners of wars want you to know. It seems so dated. Yeah. And now we have the internet and technology and, and people more than now don't know what they're talking about. What made you want to get into law enforcement? Uh, so while working in the schools, I worked with a really, really good SRO, school resource officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, came one of my friends and I had always had like two career paths. It was always kind of going to be that law enforcement route or the teaching route. Um, I had a learning disability growing up, mm-hmm. still dealing with learning disability issues, you know, even in my thirties and will do my entire life. But I had, I had to the point where I was, I wanted to affect change as, as I had a couple teachers affect change in my life. And so that's kind of, I went down that teaching route. Um, but I always had like that kind of bug with, with law enforcement and working with this SRO and just seeing how he worked with the kids in the schools and stuff. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm at the point now where we had just had our kid, our, our first child, I was like, if I'm going to make a career change, I'm going to make a career change now. You know, he's young enough that we can make the career change. And if we have, you know, a salary dip or something like that, we can, we can survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we have to move, we can survive. And so I kind of was like, yeah, let's go for it. And uh, I tested for the uh, police department I first worked with and um, didn't get the first round. So I had to go back and test again the next year and I ended up testing again the next year and got into it and started working for them. Went to the law enforcement Academy and I've been in law enforcement since then. How how long have you been in law enforcement total now? Uh, since 2014. Okay. So you've been in for two, six, six, going on seven years. Yep. Awesome. Um, so law enforcement's a hot topic now. Yep. Law enforcement wasn't really a hot topic when I was a kid. Um, if you go back in time, you're always going to see that there's been good police work, bad police work. I feel like now you just see it a lot more. I feel like now people, you don't see it more because it's happening more. You see it because people are recording it. People have phones, there's videos in every corner of everything. So, um, just like plane, plane crashes, they never happen really, but when they do, they're caught, they're, they're sensationalized. And this is now becoming uh, a huge topic of divicity inside of our country. Um, 
I remember seeing these videos. Uh, the one video that really sticks out in my mind was uh, a video of a guy being shot in the back as he was running away from a police officer. The uh, South Carolina? Probably. Yeah. Um, where he was pulled over for like some kind of uh, registration issue or tag issue. Yeah, I don't and know. And somebody, somebody was filming and it was unbeknownst to him and the guy broke free and ran away and he was like 15 or 20 yards away maybe when he got drawn on and shot. Um, in these situations, when somebody's running, a lot of times they are trying to shoot you potentially, mm-hmm. or you don't know if they're going to draw. So you never really know what's going to happen. But when this happened, I was very, very critical. And I went, I took, I took to the, you know, the social media medium. And I said, this is not just to shoot a person in their back yeah. for this is not just, there's no excuse for it. Police should be held to a higher standard. They should hold themselves to a higher standard. There shouldn't be any defense of this type of behavior, things that are crystal clear. And there's some people that I'm actually really good friends with now um, who in their own social circles were calling me a cop hater. And it's like I'd worked with law enforcement Mm -hmm. in the martial arts gym since I've been in martial arts, basically. And I was like, well, I think there has to be a medium to be critical of people that we hold in such high nobility or we are told that we need to hold in such high nobility, people that are dealing with pressures that most people don't have to deal with. But there was this, the, there was this automatic reaction to me that I was a cop hater. Well, since I got to sit down with the person, face-to-face communication, and, and said, no, look, this is my thing. It's a justice thing. Mm-hmm. Like, if I, if I accept the responsibility of police work and potentially having the f- deadly force, use of deadly force, I believe that it should be the assumption that that officer is going to protect people from other people and potentially people from their own actions yeah. if they're not of sound mind. Um, and once I explained my position, he went, oh, okay, you know, but it's very divisive. It's a very divisive topic. And now we have kind of race going into it. Um, from a, a perspective of law enforcement, uh, where do you think, do you think that there is a, a problem within the law enforcement community? Or do you feel like the law enforcement community is so big that the bad apples are just getting exposed now more and everybody's feeling the heat because of it. The one thing I think people don't, don't really, I mean, don't focus on with law enforcement is it's just people. I mean, think about any other profession, um, lawyers, doctors, any other profession out there, you're going to have good ones and you're going to have bad ones. You know, you have people doing a job Mm -hmm. and, are, are bad people going to get in? People that sh- probably shouldn't get in? Yeah. You know, there's bad doctors out there. There's doctors that kill patients all the time. Um, you know, teachers. There's, I mean, how many times, you know, once a month you so hear. So many. <laughs> once a month you hear about a teacher, you know, yeah. having sex with a student. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. It's what, it's what turns, you know, it's what gets the clicks on the news because it's, it is so... And I think the the thing that gets the clicks on the news is because the because of the badge because like you said you you there should be this standard, mm-hmm. and you know people in the community. I think are quick to defend, but I think there's more people in the community that will look at situations and say, "Yeah, that's that's good," or "No, no, that's not good," you know. And mm-hmm. you know, even talking with my friends and stuff, you know, when we see something come up, we're like, "Hey, what happened here?" You know, this doesn't seem right. Or, hey, 
Okay, that that seems like a good decent. You know, that seems like a, it was a good situation there. You know, they they probably did the appropriate force use of force, but it's like the the thinking that I'm looking at the situation is different than the thinking that you're looking at the situation. Now, you know, a lot of times when I look at these videos come out, I'm like, okay, if I'm that officer going, you know, and this is happening to me, how am I going to approach this? You know, and I don't really like to Monday morning quarterback because so many things happen, you know, and one of the things that I think people don't realize too is, you know, if you see a body camera footage, that body camera is on my chest and is getting crystal clear, you know, 10 in 1080p or whatever vision. 1080p. Yeah. <laughs> well, what am I seeing with, with my eyes? Right. You know, and there, there's, there used what to be. What are you feeling? Yeah. You know, and the, and the whole the whole situation, you know, how what information I got going to the call, you know, what information do I have from this, you know, prior dealing with a suspect or this issue or this person or this area or in general, you know, if I, this is a certain situation and I've done I've dealt with it before in this way. Um, there's so many things that happen that just seeing footage is hard to judge judge it on and i yeah. think we're we, we've reached a point where we see the footage and we're like oh that's crystal clear look at look that happened there it's like yeah. okay well x y and z happened before that and this is the information they got you know we're we're allowed to look at everything you know post and say hey well they, they should have known better it's like well yeah in a perfect world they should have yeah but, but they it didn't but in the world where this this crazy fucking lunatic stabs this, three people runs around yeah. their house and then comes out and gets shot and then the news posts this person coming yeah. out with a knife getting shot and they're like well they're 20 or 30 yards away they didn't have to yeah. do that it's like well no they had to do that you know but and context and i think that's the biggest thing is, is context and you know everyone says you know oh wait let's wait and let's wait and it's it's nice to wait but i think making statements during, you know, you know, the problem with everything now is like you said, everyone has phones. Everyone has, you know, if a situation is going to happen, someone's going to post probably within seconds of that situation happening on Twitter, on Facebook, or live shit, or or film it live, you know, and we have to, as a community adapt to that. You know, that's why like the, um, the Columbus one, um, where they had the officer uh, have the deadly force situation with the, the females trying to stab the other female. I have never seen body footage come out that quickly, but they had that body footage out within hours. Why? And that's the response. The response is because there's three different narratives going out because you had three or four different people get interviewed or post stories. And it's like, well, no, 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 no. This is the information. Let's get the actual information out. Could this be a painful part of change then where, where that body footage is coming out right away? It's not being reviewed. And like, uh, and this is where I might be naive and ignorant as well. But if what the people want is a clear crystal clear view in, in something fast to, you know, tame any potential mm-hmm. fears of abuse or whatever, is that a good thing? Is that part of like painful change in a good direction where, where the public is getting that footage? Or is that potentially putting situations at risk uh, on or behind the scenes? I think it can be both. Okay. And again, it comes down to context because 
if you get the footage out, but you don't, all the facts aren't known about it yet, it could cause more issues. Because that is a really limited view. Yes. And the dynamics of that situation, you know, hey, this is this happened. Okay. Well, what were the dynamics? If you're not getting all the information, which you may not have all the information at the time, you know, it takes a while to develop information. It takes a while to do, you know, casework, you know, interview people, um, get statements. Uh, just a video ain't enough. Just the video is not enough. Yeah. And But we are so visual people. You know, we see... Mm. A video and we're like okay now i'm making my own judgment now i'm making my own that's the truth yeah that's I, your objective it's, truth. it's the truth because yeah. it's what i saw right you know and the fact that we're not we're not willing to wait you know it's i i think that's something that's going to have to be addressed but i don't know i i don't know what the answer is yeah. i don't know if the answer is getting the video out or not getting the video out you know it's Situational, I, yeah, I guess it's situational. Um, they have a situation in, I think, South or North Carolina where they had a, another deadly force situation. And apparently there, the law is the video doesn't come out and the family's suing to get the video. Out. Sure. Do you think that's, do you think, do you think that kind of absolute stance, like we don't give out any video is uh, reasonable for a public servant? No. I mean, if, you know, we I we get situations all the time. We're like, well, I'm filming, I'm, I'm filming you too. Yeah, like right back at you, baby. Film me all you want. Like I'm filming you, you me, too. You, you. you know, so it's like, I, I know I have a body camera on. Yeah, I know everything I'm doing is going is being recorded. You know, I have I wear a, a mic too, for my car camera, that's recording my voice. So it's not like one of those things where it's like not in my mind. I know everything I'm doing is being video and audio recorded. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not afraid of my actions. You know, if I do something wrong, I do something wrong and I'm going to have to own up to that. And I'm gonna have to deal with what the consequences are, you know? And if I did something egregiously wrong, well, then and there I are, should, there are consequences too. Like then I need to get a consequence, you know? And, and I, totally agree with that if i do if i do something wrong i get a consequence i'm no different than anyone else just because i'm i have a badge and i'm given power does not make me different than you you know i'm a human being i think there's i think there's a perspective in the in the country right now where they don't think that's the case where they think that that people in law enforcement do think that they're above the law but what's so important is what you said about every profession it's a spectrum of people. Yeah. You can't take all the people that go to this profession and go, you're all Andy Griffith now. Yeah. That's not a realistic situation. You, but you should be able to, and the, I think these organizations should be able to hold themselves to a very high standard. So um, that's kind of a segue to the, how we know each other. Yep. I've believed for a long time that uh, law enforcement should or could definitely benefit from ongoing hand-to-hand training thinking that if they're if a huge part of their job is the apprehension and control of of subjects potentially violent subjects they should know the best way or at least be proficient in immobilizing these people um a guy i trained with back in the day tom grubb uh, from crpd Mm -hmm. uh he was a mixed martial artist wrestler all the way throughout his childhood as well um became a mixed martial artist and would constantly talk about (laughs) It's, it's so much more easy to do the job because of what I know that I'm capable of doing. 
So I got first count, uh, you know, reports from him early in my martial arts journey that this was beneficial to police work. Yeah. And there have been many, many uh, departments and many, many law enforcement agencies adopting further training now, especially now yeah. after recent events. Yeah. Um, what was your experience? So um, I opened up the gym for law enforcement to come in here and get three months. This was in response to George Floyd, which I want to talk about that case in specific, because that was about the catalyst for when this all yeah. started taking place in our gym. And um, from your perspective as an officer with some combat footage uh, or some combat experience with uh, wrestling and things, judo, uh, what was this experience like for you coming into the gym and continuing this training? How did it help you? And um, what would you say to other officers who might say, I, you know, I don't need this. We have a strong police department. I know what I'm doing. It's not I mean, I had like I, I had wrestling and I had judo experience and I had confidence in my abilities. But even still, it was always kind of like one of those questioning. It was like, OK, well. You know, I, I, I can do, I can hit a double leg on most people. But it's like, well, that guy's a little big over there. I don't know if I can really hit a double leg on him. You know, it, and this, most people you would, most people the, you'd be fine with. Yeah. And my keys. Like, so I was like, okay, well this could be a little bit of a fun scrap here. If something went sideways, it was like, okay. And it was kind of like, I had the experience of the Academy with their defensive tactics. And I ended up actually going down and becoming a, um, an instructor in the defensive tactics. So I'm an instructor for my department. And going through that, you're like, there's something more here. Like, there's something more we can do. Because it's like, this is not, you can't tell me this is just it. And this is going to work. And so I was was I was looking for something, you know. And I, I listened to a lot of podcasts. And um, I was wanting to get into, into the game. Because I was like, I think I could get into this jujitsu stuff. I think, I, would, I think this will help out. And mm-hmm. It's fun. It's fun. I mean, it gives me gets me back on the mats and stuff, and I think I like it. And coming in here and just, I think the first day I was here, I think you said, "Well, yeah, you don't have to roll." And I was like, "No, no, man, I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'll doing doing some shrimping and learn some. Okay, this is half guard. Yeah, I'm like I've watched enough MMA. I know what half guard is. I'm like I get it. You know, it's done. And then to quote our quote, it's I'm done. And then like that first day I was like, okay, well I'm going to roll. What's the worst that's going to happen? I'm going to tap out. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think, I don't remember who I rolled with first, but I remember grabbing someone and just rolling and be like, what am I doing? Like, it's like, I, I literally would get, I'm like, okay, well I'm here and I have some judo experience where I'm like, okay, well I know I can go for this arm bar and I know I can go for this choke, but I'm like, they're grabbing me and I don't know really what I'm doing. What I, I just, should focus yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind of like, okay, I really don't know anything at this at point. Huh? I need to do this. And it was that I went home from that and I told my wife, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm like, I'm, some people just know. And it's just, I think it's just, you know, if you're a grappler, you're a grappler. Yeah. Like, you know, spending, taking time away. And then once you get back on the mat, you're like, yep, yep, I'm back. Mm-hmm. You know, and then doing this was, it was so new and it was so different. And it's, you know, yeah, in judo, you do some of the groundwork, but not to the nearly to the extent that this is. And it was, to me, it was like, okay, 
I need to know more about this. Like this is this is like a 3D chess pu- you know chess game going on. And yeah. It's just so fascinating to me. Like, okay, well, if I move this way and I'm trying to get you to this position, how am I going to do that? Well, you're doing that. I don't want you to do that. Now, how do I get you back to this position? And coming in and learning that and then the progress that has been over, you know, the last 11 months at this point, my confidence and just being out there and being on the streets and being, you know, a lot of times I'm by myself. Um, I could tell you my confidence increased and it wasn't the fact that like, Hey, um, I can go out and tap anyone out right now. It's like, no, I know if a situation happens, I have some skills and I've been practicing those skills and I feel pretty confident in some of those skills. And I know that if, Hey, if this goes down, I can do this. So I, how I have that in the back of my mind and And it's like, now I can, now I don't have to rely on something else. I don't have to sit there and say, go into this call and say, Hey, Oh crap. If this goes down, I don't know what's going to happen here. You know, I might have would you have said that you were confident before though? Like, would you have said that because this is what I think could happen in a situation where you have wrestling and you have judo, which are very competent martial arts, mm-hmm. especially for the act of subduing people in controlling positions. Um, it would be easy to go, Oh yeah, I'm confident and get, and be potentially like now slipping over to the overconfident place where you're telling yourself you're confident, but you don't know that you're confident. You don't know that you can apply these skills. And I think that's, I think that's a lot of it. I think, cause when I came in here that first day and all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I really don't know what I'm doing here. Fish kind of fish out of water yeah. in certain. Situations. It was like, okay. And then my mind was like, well, I've been operating under this idea. Like, Hey, <laughs> this, you know, I don't know what to do with my I'm, hands. I'm like, Oh yeah, we're going to get in a big Greco Roman wrestling match. I'm going to be fine. Yeah. Or I'm going to hit you with, you know, everything's going to happen precisely the way the universe has aligned. I'm going to hit me. you with this perfect Ipon Sayanagi and it will be amazing. And it's like, no. And then the ref's going to jump in. Yep. Yep. Epon, we're good. <laughs> uh, uh, no, it was like, uh, yeah, I really don't know. And it was like, I had this skill level before and I've had this belief and it's like, no. Mm-hmm. And even now it's like, I'm uh, again, I'm, I have this confidence in my ability, but not even still I'm like, okay, well, uh, you're like six two, two thirty, two forty. Like, yeah. okay, this is gonna be, this how is I, gonna be how definitely gonna interesting this? if this yeah. goes down and this gets sideways. And it's like, okay, well, glad I got Bruno on the team yeah. to roll with me every once in a while. <laughs> but it's like I think that that has taken you know it it, it allows you to see reality, mm. you know. And I think too many of us get into this and we have this over sense of. Hey, my prior skills are, Hey, I, I did this 10 years ago in high school. It's like, yep. if you're not competent and you're not training and you're not practicing and you're not doing this on a daily basis or a weekly basis, where does your competency go? Well, it comes to that, what you were talking about again, it comes down to like, what does that mean? Does it mean that you kind of wrestled a little bit in yeah. middle school or high school and then you quit? Or were you one of these kids that trained from five to 18 and got burned out mm-hmm. and have this really solid set of base somewhere in there. There's a huge spectrum. It just kind of depends on every person. But one thing that, uh, that I remember after you'd been here for a while and something that really stuck with me is all of these uh, stories about police brutality that have been kind of pumped in, in our face lately. 
you came in and we were having a conversation and you said something about how at a point where you may have thought about potentially drawing your weapon, you thought about the potential uh, publicity of it. Yeah. Right. And, and at the very worst time. Yep. So talk to me a little bit about just that experience and why it sucks (laughs) in your position and why it's, in my opinion, like there's, there's victims on both sides of this mm-hmm. thing. There's good cops who are having to suffer in their own police work because of the action of a few bad cops. And there's people who, because of a few bad cops, are suffering as well. So talk to me about that experience and talk to me about kind of like how you have to sometimes question yourself because of the way things are perceived. You know, in that, in that kind of situation it was the split second that typically we have, you know, if the the unfortunate reality that we live in now is that I, when I operate in that split second, I'm making a life, you know, I've, I've been granted this power to make this life or death decision. Mm -hmm. And I have these powers and I have these things that the, the state tells me I have to do and society is telling me I have to do. And I am now because of, how other situations are going on, I am now actively thinking about, okay, is there someone over there videotaping this? Is there, is the lighting correct that my camera is going to get everything is, uh, did I follow every single policy in, in line so that if this is a bad situation or this was a good situation that I can't get in trouble because I, I messed up on one policy, you know, because the, you know, the city's going to be looking after, the city. And if you mess up on the policy, you mess up on the policy, you know, and it's having that happen. And when that did happen, it kind of was like, I I never thought I would be thinking stuff like that. You know, I was always, I've always operated under, okay, if something happens, it happens, you know, and I have to assess the situation as is. And all of a sudden it's like, boom. Oh. And I, I mean, when I got done with it, I, I had to take a few minutes of Lee like, huh, you know, and I don't know if it was the fact that, you know, we're actively seeing these things happen all the time and pumping stuff in, in our face. And, you know, you see the videos come out and you see these stories come out and you see these big situations come well, out. Well, it has to. It has it's to. like it's, it's not like you can shut that out. You know, and, and I've taken a pretty. When situations happen, I'll, you know, obviously I see it because I'm a member of social media, but I typically don't really get too involved in you know, a big situation coming out. I, I let it happen for a day or two mm-hmm. and then let the kind of information kind of shuffle out. And then all of a sudden then I'll be like, okay, now I'll look into what's kind of going on because I, I don't want to get sucked into that right away. You're trying to make an informed decision. Yeah. You're saying? Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. seems logical. Cause you know, I mean, we can get, you know, the algorithms are going to give us what we want to see, you know, and, my social media, because I follow certain people and I read certain stories, are going to give me algorithms that are probably going to be skewed towards my views. Law enforcement. Yeah. Versus, I want I want to see what everyone else, you know what the other side, quote unquote, is talking about. I want to see what you know the law enforcement side is talking about. I want to see what the press is talking about. I want to understand the whole picture and be like, okay, now I understand the situation. So I kind of try to 
take a little bit of a hands-off approach on it. But the but point is, the in po- a critical it's, it's, point, it's now affecting me. The yeah. fact that I've what people don't know yeah. is that it's seconds. Yep. It's maybe it's maybe a second, maybe it's half a second. Well, Same yeah. as jujitsu, you make a mistake and you pay dearly for it. Well, in your line of work, that could, and oftentimes for, for officers across the country, is their life. Mm-hmm. So you sitting here in this moment where you've been empowered with this decision to potentially save others or what you know save multiple people, you're tasked with this responsibility. And in this moment, you're having to question yourself unwittingly, yeah. unconsciously about the potential ramifications. Yeah. And what people don't know is that will kill you. It 100% will kill you. That's and a that's a thrust. That's a shot or two shots. You know, and that's it's not only that, it's also it's do I draw a taser or do I draw a gun? Mm-hmm. Do I draw a baton? Do I do I use the a misappropriated use of force for that situation? You know, and you see these situations where they're like, oh, well, they shot too quickly. They didn't understand the situation. Well, they had a millisecond. You don't understand this. You'd like, you know, they had a millisecond to understand and process that, process that information. We will always be behind the curve. You know, you talk about how everything operates. You operate and then I'm reacting. I'm always going to be behind the curve. Mm-hmm. You know, you're always going to get the jump on me if you are reacting versus me reacting. So now I have to somehow make up that gap. So I'm either saving my life or I'm saving someone else's life or I'm making sure that this use of force is appropriate. Well, if I'm behind that curve, how do I make that gap up? Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain situations that you're never going to make that gap up. You're, you're going to just react and you're going to have to react the best you can. The misconception of the public and even myself in the past, I've went, what's the rule of thumb to draw if somebody with a deadly weapon gets within X amount of feet? Like I know there's, there's the, there is the 21 foot rule that 21 and it's, that one's kind of been debunked a little bit. Well, here's, here's what I thought about that 21 foot rule back in the day when I didn't really know anything. And when it was easy for me to just Mm -hmm. make accusations, 21 feet, that's like, you know, yeah. here's me in jujitsu perspective, 21 feet. That's like, oh yeah, that's across the country in jujitsu yep. terms. I'm gonna have all the time to do that. Well, that's me. And then when I watch actual video, like multiple videos, I see that 21 feet can be bridged incredibly quickly, yep. depending on what kind of conditions. Whether you have something at your back, whether when yep. you, whether you can even draw your weapon. I see people going to draw their weapon, being rushed back, tripping over their own feet, falling yep. victim to circumstance. It happens so fast. Now, after, now after I watch this, I go, oh yeah, 20, maybe like 30. Yeah. Maybe 30 feet. Well, it's that reaction, action, reaction. It's, and it's the same thing with jujitsu is, you know, if I'm going to do a super hardcore pressure pass on you and you're, you're not prepared for it, all of a sudden I start doing this pressure pass on you. You're like, Oh, you get ahead. I'm, I'm ahead of that curve then. Yeah. And now you have to react to that. Mm-hmm. You know, and think of how many times we, you know, someone does like a, 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 a sudden athletic movement on you all of a sudden you know, it, someone shoots a double leg. Well, you're sprawling. Well, if they've had that split second of, I have my arms fully wrapped on your legs, my head's in a good position. My hips are in have fun sprawling. Yeah. You, you know, you're just you're, run right through you. You're going to run right through you. you know, if Jordan yeah. Burroughs hits you with a blast double, you're, you're on your back. Yeah. You know, there's very few people that have that reaction time that can say, oh, okay, you know, I can get to that. And then now take that onto a situation where, 
you may have gotten limited information from dispatch. You may have gotten good information. It doesn't know because the, the problem with di- that is you're the caller calling in, providing the information to them, which provides information to me. Right. So it, it, again, it's kind of de- depending on how much information the caller gives the dispatch to give, to give me. Yeah. So I may have limited information. I may have good information. I go into a high tense, high volatile situation and all of a sudden it goes south. Now I have all these things compiling and I'm trying to take all this data, interpret this data and come up with a, a course of action. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about seconds. Yeah. So to paint a picture, um, the, the nightly news reports, instance of police brutality here, blah, 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 blah. Uh, unarmed man was shot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what people get. Mm-hmm. Then the video comes out. But I, I'll take you, I'll, and this is kind of, it's not really pet peeve, but in any situation with a, per, with a, just any individual and a police officer, is there a gun? What do you mean? I'm sorry. There's always mean? a gun in the situation, right? Because the cop or the police officer has a gun. So yeah. you could be unarmed. But there's always a firearm in that situation. Yeah, in the in the actual. Yep. Yeah, and, that, and that's what and that's what kind things. of annoys me a little bit is they're always like unarmed, unarmed, unarmed. I'm like, okay, well, well, and that's what they may be unarmed. That's but kind there's of always a, there's always a gun in the situation. That's where I'm going with this is that's what they see. Yep. They see the video of the unarmed person laying on the ground or shot, and they start forming their opinions. Mm-hmm. What they don't know is there was this data that was funneled down through two or three mediums and then interpreted by the police officer <laughs> as they're arriving. And what might trickle through the filter of information are the most key points. And the most key points is this guy has a warrant out for his arrest for violent behavior. He's known to be involved in this situation in that situation. And he's not, he hasn't presented a gun in public view, but he's acting as if he has a gun. Yep. That's a totally different situation. If it was presented in, in the news like that, this person who had warrants out for his arrest for beating his old lady and sh- you know shooting somebody t- three years ago, whatever the case may be, then people would go, oh, yeah, well, he was like threatening, yeah. so like I could see it. But that's not what they're given. They're given the window. Yep. And they're framing this whole perspective on it. And the thing that's interesting to me is I went on two or three ride-alongs in my life. High school, I did one or two. And then I did one just recently with a guy here in local uh, at CRPD. Nothing really happened. We went yeah. out on St. Paddy's Day. And um, there were some interesting stories and a lot of drunks and things like that. But nothing crazy hot went down. But I, I still got it better. You know what I mean? Yeah. I still understood, uh, understood on, a, on a better level how things can go south. And here's my advice to anybody who's a self-professed cop hater. Go on a ride along. Yeah. Yeah. Just going to ride along. Get if you can't do that, then you're not really embracing an open perspective. You're limiting yourself to this point of view and whatever you're kind of handed or shoveled. Well, and I think that that gets back to we have lost the idea of dissent, mm-hmm. of being able to talk to people. And, you know, even in situations that I deal with is trying to talk, you know, the majority of my job is communication is how can I communicate with you? He's like, you know, I'm called to the situation and there's always two sides, three sides, four sides, five sides to every story. Sure. And I have to figure out the truth and I have to figure out, was there a law that was violated? Uh, is there a victim of a crime? 
all that stuff. When I have you telling me a side, I have someone else telling me a side, I have maybe this witness over here saying something, and it's like, okay, how can I effectively communicate? And now I'm communicating with someone that may not be rationally thinking because they called me and it's probably the worst day of their life. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's either a medical emergency or they had, they may be a victim of a crime or they may be a perpetrator of a crime. It's not good. It's probably the worst day of their life. So now you're trying to talk to someone in a irrational state and you're trying to communicate what happened, how it happened, you know, what's going on in this, in this giant situation. And I have other people trying to say their side of the story you have so much data flowing at you and it's if you can't process that that's that's when i think we start having breakdowns is when we start having breakdowns is when people can't be processing that information and you know you have so much information coming at you and and a lot of it's bullshit right like you it, not, but not all of it but sometimes you're going to be given yeah, information from people that is not valid in any way and 100% could potentially end up being hazardous 100%, to not recognize but you know there's a lot of times in situations where uh, I mean, just think about if you like the worst situation you've ever been in your life, how how you were thinking, what important yeah. information to you at that point in time might not be important information in general. True. You know, people pick up on different things and, you know, especially if it's a uh, um, a personal crime, you know, if it's you know an assault or domestic violence, something like that, where there's a, an actual victim to this crime you're going to be sitting there and you may be picking up on something. It might be the most important thing that you thought to me trying to prove that this crime occurred. And I could, you know, it might not be something I really need, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to get this other, you know, was, did this happen? You know, did they have a weapon? Did this go on? You know, I'm trying to get that from you and you can't get off of that. And it's how can I communicate with you to get you to give me that information? Right. You know, and I, I think, in the profession, what people don't understand is that's what our job is. Our job is to try to communicate with you. You know, how do we effectively do that? Do you think that, uh, you know, like jujitsu training, a lot of, I think what is great about jujitsu training is like the interpersonal, the philosophical, the conversations that happen after or before. Um, Do you think that there is a possibility of benefit for literally interpersonal communication skills in law enforcement? hundred percent. Like just part of our continued education is, is teaching you how to deal with uh, somebody who's under the influence of meth. Like if you can, if there's a way that you can, right? Like we found, we've cracked the code. Um, but just ongoing trainings like that. I feel like in situations where you've, you have this tight camaraderie or brotherhood, there's sometimes a reluctant, uh, a reluctance to, accept ongoing education. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that potentially stems from the ego where yep. we don't need it. We know what we're doing. This yep. is our job. This is what, well, it's, it's, you get, you get hold up. I mean, and I, and I see it where we are part of a community and our, you know, uh, the life of a law enforcement officer is very different than the life of, uh, just normal citizen. No, I wouldn't say civilian because normal, I, normal, normal yeah. citizen. One of those normals. One of those but, peasant class. Yes. <laughs> you know, I, I, I believe that you know you're you're off duty, but you're never off duty. You know, if I'm out in public and I see something going on, 
my skill and my training and my job, I, you know, I took an oath. I have a duty to respond to something. That doesn't mean I have to jump up and freak out. If my duty is to call the police at that point is that, you know, that's my duty, but that I, yeah. Shout out to the off duty police officers because they've saved some people's shit. Yeah. Many, many, many. an off duty police officer literally stopped this, but it happens. But we have, I think there's this tendency that we get in these communities and we hold off in these communities Mm -hmm. and we don't, we don't tend to expand out of these communities. And, you know, and it's like most of the people I hang out with are not police officers. You know, I, I kind of, when I got into this, I got into this late in life. Mm-hmm. And so I think, more mature and just kind of, and I think one of my big things was I don't want to get hold into that community where I'm just kind of stuck in that community. You know, I want to be able to expand and still have influences and still be talked to people outside, you know, and I, I, I hang out with police officers and, mm-hmm. but the majority of the people I hang out with aren't police officers because when I get done with work, I don't want to just sit there and all of a sudden be talking about work. You know, if we're hanging out and it's our day off, I don't want to talk about work. Mm-hmm. I feel the same way about martial arts. Like, uh, I, I talk about it all day. Yeah. I do it all day. Yeah. So when I'm done with the day, I maybe watch basketball. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like appreciate some other kind of medium, but, um, I think that just helps us stay connected though. Like if we get so connected. compartmentalized, compartmentalized in that into our, our own little individual sections, you know, you can say that about education, you know, if you're Anything. a teacher and you just hang out with teachers all day, and that you're in the school and you're not doing anything outside of it. You're not doing volunteer work with, you know, a church group or you're not doing a, you know, martial arts class or a fitness class where you get exposed to and you hang out with other people from other walks of life and yeah. other occupations. It's a slippery slope because now I feel an allegiance or an honor to this smaller group of people and their limited perspective, mm-hmm. which means I'm going to be more likely with ego to further there and my yeah. own progress and yeah. not the progress of the greater good. Yeah. It's, it, I believe it to be a remnant of tribalism. Yes. Of tribal, yeah, tribal behavior. I need to adhere to this group. And my hope for 2020, 2021 was that we had kind of broken free of the chains well, of tribalism. And I've, we've been proven lately that they're very strong. They're it's, very, very strong. But we have so much pumping at us with the tribalism <laughs> to you make mean, us more tribal. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you have to be, you have to be this, you have to be this. If you're this, you have to believe in this. And yep. it's like, no, I am, I am who I am. And I may have friends over here. I may have friends that do this. I may have people over here. And I want to take all of that information and input all of that information and then make my opinions and make my decisions. But it's the more I can expand that and the more I can, open myself up to everything else it's mm-hmm. you know and then social media is just pumping that in our face saying hey you know with those algorithms because hey i might have looked at this website and now it's tracking my websites that i'm looking at and it's saying hey let's pump these ads towards them or Isn't these articles weird that's weird to me like, uh, i just updated my phone it's weird <laughs> and i noticed when i just updated my phone i got two messages right away it was like so-and-so app wants permission to track your stuff on when you're off. And I'm like, uh, no. So, so click no. And then all of a sudden I got another one. And I'm like, why would my workout app want to track where I'm going and what I'm looking at? So it knows where to sell shit. Exactly. But yeah. it's like, 
huh you know it's but it's again it gets back to well we have all this information you know why are we holding ourselves up we have all this information and we have no connection yeah we have we are the most informed we have ever been as a society yeah we i mean i can pick up my phone right now and read pretty much any book i ever wanted to read mm-hmm. and find out anything i ever wanted to there's probably a website or a facebook page or instagram post or something yeah but i am but people are choosing to wall off and we have these we're not choosing to use that resource well and i think that part of this uh this is just my personal opinion technology has grown at such an exponential rate that i feel like what we're seeing now is this era where um algorithms and technological growth are getting to a point where they're actually manipulating human behavior because of our our likelihood of tribalism because of our likelihood to to uh, respond more instinctively towards urges sex food survival so do you see that uh what was that netflix one that they had out about the social social dilemma yeah yeah and so a lot of the writers of these algorithms don't even know what direction they're going after they write them and Furthermore, you are imprinting, you're, you're using technology in a technology that not everybody that even, even anybody understands in, in a whole in allowing it to, to drive social decisions, social mm-hmm. behavior, ultimately the way people spend their time. And most of it is built, uh, as I understand it for marketing, for yeah. marketing products and selling shit. And I've had a huge issue with this ever since 9-11 and the Patriot Act and the collection of consumer data in, in mass at, you know, NSA centers. And people would look at me and go, oh, you're a conspiracy. No, it's, tr- it's true. Like, it's out there. Yeah. It's, they don't even hide it. But that's what, you know, it's weird to be in a time, to, to grow up in a time like the 80s and 90s, where something like the book 1984 was an Orwellian nightmare. Yep. And now it's just reality. It's just well, cameras it, everywhere, Big Brother watching, Big Brother admitting that Big Brother is watching, you know, us paying politicians essentially to track, monitor, and force feed us shit. Yeah. You know, through mass media and social media. I feel like mass media destroyed culture and society yeah. or is or is trying to in mass and social media is destroying image of self. Yeah. It's completely self absorbing people and leading people. I don't think there's any coincidence to link mental illness epidemics and rise with the rise of social media and technology. I think back to when I was a kid, um, you know, my parents are both very well educated. My mom was a nurse. My dad's an electrical engineer, probably the smartest person I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, Mm -hmm. just a brilliant person. Um, But we'd be eating dinner. We'd be at, my dad was always, you know, a card carrying Republican. And my mom typically, my mom was a Democrat and I think back, balance. Yeah. <laughs> but I think back to, to them talking about it. I mean, they would talk about politics when we were kids mm-hmm. and it wasn't, well, my guy said this and this is what it is. It was, it was talking about issues. And then you could see the ones, you know, my dad would say something and my mom would say something my mom, and they would go back and forth and it was just kind of approaching that. And I think that's, being raised like that, being able to see that there are multiple sides of issues. You know, you, you can have a conversation about an issue about, you know, quote unquote, the other side. That's the point, you know, and, and it's like the whole point is so that everybody can have a side and argue their points. But I think that's, 
you know, that's how I was raised. And I think that's how I approach things you know, because that's how I was raised. And I, I know, you know, with my wife, that's my wife's not very political. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know I, I like listening to, you know, like the, the political podcast because it's, to me, I, I view it as kind of comedy of like, especially like the, the national politics. Cause it's like, this is hilarious. Like you guys can't figure out how to talk to each other. I think that our culture is terrified. I think it's been terrified since nine yeah. 11. It's been, it's been bred to be fearful of Y2K nine 11 terrorism, uh, now viruses. And, um, uh, they're so terrified and they're so unfulfilled that all they can, all they can really do to find meaning in their life is to adhere allegiance to a color, uh, a donkey or an elephant, um, a Democrat or Republican party. And here's the jam. Like when I was six, I knew that politics were full of shit. I knew that politics were a four letter word. People told me, Oh, it's political. What does that mean? Well, there's a bunch of issues that don't really adhere to this subject or whatever. Well, Well, why do we do that? We, nobody knows. Why are you a Democrat? Because I believe this. What about their issues as a Republican? Well, they're wrong. Well, I know. It's just like, it's, it's so easily explained to me as tribalism and as uh, intellectual laziness, a way for me to go, ah, this, my, all I, my idea, ideologies are reddish in color and that this, this animal family member represents our party. And, and I'm one of these guys. Yeah. To me, it's like, that's so simplistic. Yeah. It's drawing the line in the sand where you're supposed to meet and talk, but now people are just getting further and further away from the sand. I know I've had to over the last couple of years, cause my son's getting older and he's, you know, he's asked questions about certain situations cause they, I'm sure they're talking in school and it's like, I may have this opinion, but I want to make sure that he understands there is multiple sides. So I will maybe explain my my side but then i'll explain the other side to him Mm -hmm. because i don't want him looking at me and saying well this is what dad thinks Mm -hmm. this is this must be right no i may think i'm right but it's up to you to make your choice in life and you know that's one thing my parents were you know i'm blessed that my parents essentially you know the three of us they let us choose our our paths Mm -hmm. you know they let us they didn't there wasn't very many things that were pushed on us because it was, Hey, yeah, you can go make your own path. And how did, how are you going to make your own path and how are you going to learn? Yeah. You know, and I, I, that's something I hold dear that I want to in, put on my kids is, you know, just because I say something or I do something or I believe in something doesn't mean you need to. Right. Well, and for, to that point with information changing so fast now, I, I have to be able to admit to yeah. myself that the information I have limited as it is compared to what you get might not yeah. be complete enough to tell your story. But the point is your parents and my parents both recognized that yep. and went, no, 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 no. Specifically and implicitly do not just adhere to what I say. Yeah. Go find the secrets. My mom did this even with religion. Most people are fanatical about religion and they're afraid that if you don't adhere to their religion, you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity. Oh. She went, she went, no, no, go read stuff. Go yeah. read about Jesus. Go read about Muhammad. Make sure that this is the right call. Do not make this choice to be our religion unless you do it of sound mind and, and yeah. heart. Um, and I ended up not adhering to that religion, but I ended up taking some things away from that religion yep. that I took seriously that I wouldn't have taken seriously if I was forced. Yeah. And as a rebellious person, if I would have been forced to, I would have rejected it yeah. even unreasonably <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So 
having that kind of open-mindedness opens up the doors for our children to open up the doors for their children. But I feel like most of the troublemakers in society today are people who are brought up traumatized in positive or negative ways towards a certain ideology and shamed for thinking any other ideology. What are you, some kind of Democrat, liberal? What are you, some stupid Republican? So they identify with that which makes them comfortable, which is in no way noble, is no way moral or even just. And to be a 2020, to be 2021 now and see people more polarized and divided between the Democratic and Republican Party, which don't bear any resemblance to how they started, it just blows my mind. And I don't have anybody trying to explain to me why or how as a six-year-old kid I saw politics for what it was and I'm still seeing it for what it was. We have the capacity to change this. We just have to change it. We have to insist upon it, in my opinion. Bringing that back to kind of law enforcement too, it's the more open-minded that I can approach situations, you know, I feel that me personally, I feel that, you know, when I go into situations that I, that I've had this experience that I've have this upbringing and how I, how I approach myself and my family, it helps me understand stuff more because then I can say to people, okay, I understand this how you're feeling. You may have done something that is against law, but I can empathize with you. And I can say, yeah, that's that that, that sucks, man, but you know, this is this is the kind of consequence that has to happen. And you know, and I was telling my one buddy the other day, I was like, you know, the fact that I can empathize empathize with people and I can talk to them about it and they can tell I'm s- sincere with how I'm talking to them and communicating with them. Typically, they they're most of the people are like, yeah, they don't want to go to jail, but they're like, oh, thanks. Yeah, I get it. I mean, yeah. this sucks. I'm like, yeah, I get it. You're yeah. a real person. Yeah, because uh, you were a teacher once, and you saw cyclical generational issues and yep. poverty, and you can talk about that in a way that's so genuine to them they can't deny its truth. Well, and I think the one of the big things, and I am, is that I've got into this late. You know, I I mm. didn't get into this till I was like. 30 or 31. I that is a pretty important thing. You I know, like and having, having the life experience and, and having mm-hmm. those, you know, I love my wife and we've had our ups and downs, you know, we've had fights and we've had those situations where you're, you're really hot and heated at each other. So if you go into a domestic situation and they're hot and heated, well, maybe you can empathize with them a little bit more, you know, and, or, you know, you're in your traffic stop and Hey, you didn't pay your registration. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time with money right now. Okay, I get that. I've been there. I've had hard times with money. Empathy. You know, it's, em- it's empathy. showing empathy to people and being genuine and honest about it. A lack of empathy, I think, is one of the problems, yeah. one of the key problems, because there's no empathy um, or there, there's not due empathy in, in directions like, you know what, that, that officer had they have a really rough go of it. They got into the force when they were 18 or or 19 or 20. And they're coming from a totally different perspective than you are. And there's no empathy for what's going on psychologically. You're just going badge uniform. Well, they just don't have the life experience, you know, and and there are great officers I've seen that got into this at a young game. Sure. You know, and they're, they've, they've been able to mature and understand and they came and grow. from their own unique yes. and potentially ground, you know, experience. and I've seen other officers and other agencies and that it's like, well, they, you could tell that this attitude about, Hey, I have a badge. I'm in charge. 
Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm in charge of the situation when I'm called there, but I can talk myself into a fight a lot easier than I can talk myself out of a fight. Mm-hmm. And it's harder to talk myself out of a fight, but you know what? I'd rather talk myself out of that fight and not have to deal with that and deal with the consequences because at, at any point in the fight, I can get punched and it could be done. Yeah. You know, and I've, I think people don't know that. (laughs) Well, and I think people don't know that because they're not doing it. They're not actively training. training. They're not actively doing something to, to, uh, to say, Hey, this is not a good situation to, to be fighting. Like I should not be fighting. Mm -hmm. You know, how can I talk myself out of this so we can maybe have a, a better result for you, for me, for everyone here. Right. You know, and I, there, there are certain situations where, you know, this has to happen. Okay. Well, this has to happen. I know what the outcome has to be. You know, you have to be put in cuffs and you have to go to jail. Well, I can get really big and bully. And next thing you know, you're going to be challenging me and then we're going to just escalate, escalate, escalate. Or I can say, Hey, come over here, man. Let me talk to you. De-escalate. You know how, Hey, this is going on. This happened. I get it. Let's just get this done. You know, put you in cuffs. We'll go take care of this. You'll see the judge. Well, you can get, get this done. It sucks. I'm sorry. You know, for yeah. Your, search, your situation. You know, am I still in charge of the situation? Yeah. Am I, if he escalates, can I still escalate? Yeah. hundred percent. But if I can talk myself out of having to go hands on or use a tool or something like that, that's the art of arts. You know, that's that verbal judo. That's that. Uh, if you can diffuse violence with your words, you're a bad man. In my opinion, you know, Tim Kennedy shared a story about how he was at a bar and some guy came up and tried to get in a fight with him. No shit. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, first of all, whoever's trying to pick a fight at with Tim, whoever's trying to pick a fight with Tim Kennedy probably needs to go check themselves into a hospital. They're, they're all over the place. I know, but I know, you know, <laughs> but he was like, could I have mopped this guy up in two seconds? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The guy dumped like a beer on his head or something. Tim bought him another beer and said, Hey, here's a beer. It's like there, he understood, but he understands the consequence of violence. Yeah. You know, and I, and I'm, and the, the consequence of love, it sounds like as well, yeah. because it makes people look like fools yeah. when you're, you know, like this is something that all the great hit teachers of history have said and have taught. If you have somebody who, who hates you and you love them in, in very simple terms, they look dumb. Yeah. They look like fools. They look, they're outed as the corrupted. And so just empathy, Yep. just affording people empathy and going, you're in your own thing. And it goes all the way back to the day that you arrived here. And I can understand that. And based on my communication, based on the data limited or otherwise I've gotten about this situation, things probably ain't great for you. And they probably haven't been great for you. And I get that. There's a humanness to that where... I believe somebody even from the furthest reaches of your perspective in life experience can go, okay, well, if you can not treat me like shit, if you can treat me like a human being, even at a weak point in time, I'll have just enough empathy for you to not try to be violent with you. And that's, I mean, that's something that could cure the world and something that I feel like egos on both sides and damage and trauma and circumstance kind of prevent us from getting to at this point. I think that with that empathy comes the confidence and training that we were talking about earlier, because I know I have this ability. Now I can focus on empathy because I have that in the back of my mind. 
that if you escalate, I can escalate. It's like an ace in the hole. Yeah. Yes. And I, and I do, that's not something that has to be my go-to. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be big and bully to be my go-to. You know, I can now really focus on that being empathetic, talking to you, communicating with you versus having to, Hey, I have to control everything. Mm-hmm. Do you think jujitsu mandatory for law enforcement? Um, not mandatory like every day or like they have to adopt it to the, the spirit in, that you and some of the other officers and law enforcement have here, but some mandatory consistent training, do you feel like it would affect um, officer related in, in incidents or where they had to potentially use lethal force? Do you think that you would see um, with a nationwide expectation, would you see a sharp decline in those events? I think so, but I go back and forth on this because making it mandatory, just knowing what I know about the community, you're not going to have people buy in. You're going to have people go through the motions, you know, and I think as this was, and this is kind of random, but I was listening to um, John Donaher mm-hmm. on Lex Friedman's and he was talking about how, I've been told by like three people. Oh God, it's <laughs> to listen to that. I love Donner too, so I'll check it out. It's 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 amazing, but just make sure you have like two bangs with you to because like both those guys, how they talk, you're gonna fall asleep. Yeah. But uh, he was talking about drilling. Mm-hmm. He's like, I never drill for numbers, and I never tell guys to drill for numbers. Not hey, go hit ten of these. Hey, go hit ten of these, and focus on what's important and how to get better with drilling. Yeah. And that's and that's how I. But that's how I look about with training. If I tell you that you have to do this, you're not going to, there's going to be a percentage of people say, okay, let's go. There's going to be a percentage of people that says, all right, I'll do it. And they may turn into the, okay, let's do it. And then you're going to have a percentage of people that says, fuck this. This is stupid. (laughs) I'm showing up because I have to show up. They're but making it, me do this. I should be doing the yes. things I know I should be doing. But they're not going to get anything out of it. And then you're going to have, you're always going to have that percentage of people that don't want to do it and that don't see any benefit in it. And do I think it's going to help situations? Yes, 100%. Um, I think that if we make it mandatory and we make some level of understanding of combatives mandatory with consistent training, not yeah. just training, consistent training, you're going to see a dramatic decrease in even use of tools, injuries. Stuff I think like that. taser yeah. taser use would go down. I think uh, OC use would go down. I think you know you don't really see baton use anymore because no one really uses batons. But all of those would go down. But you have to have that level of consistency with it. Mm. Just because you do a training once a year or twice a year or three times a year, um, you know. And that you go out and someone shows these moves and you drill them. And then but if you're not drilling that and you're not practicing that, you're not making an actual attempt to understand the how and why. dynamics of it. Mm-hmm. It's not going to have any effect, especially in the moment. Yeah. Of, of great stress. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like you can't think at that point. You just have yep. to do it. One thing I started doing, um, I started implementing live action training, just role playing training. And, uh, at first we did role play and training full gear. I was the bad guy cause I can control that situation and I can control how, how violent I want that situation to be. It worked pretty well. I think guys got a, a glimpse on, 
okay, well, this didn't work out. Okay, this worked out. Okay, maybe I need to work on this over here. But they, they got that glimpse. And then we escalated it. We added um, simunitions, which is essentially paintball round. Looks like a real gun. Bullets look the same, except it's paintball round and it hurts. So we added a consequence, a real consequence. If you screw up and I pull that gun and it's I shoot you, it's going to hurt. There's that real consequence. You're going to learn. <laughs> You're learn but we did that and people, you know, the response I got from people was amazing. They're like, this is Beth. This was an amazing training. Yeah. Because it's real, right? Because it's real. It's but then they got to feel though. They got to feel me having that level of violence and, you know, controlling that level of violence with them. Hey, there's this level of consequence. It's not these red guns where we go bang. Yeah, you got me. Ha ha. Right. No, now it's you go bang and oh, you got me. That that would have been me going to the hospital, maybe me dying. Yeah. No half guard if you've got a bullet. Yeah. Bullet. You know, and I think that training is more valuable than any training I could have done. Hmm. You know, and I the, I've got an amazing response from it from from the guys I worked with, and they're like, yeah, that was a great training. That's awesome. You know, and I think the more we can get the more you can do that with guys and then have them see and then have them feel, have them feel in the, yeah. the debrief afterwards. Hey, how, you know, I was doing this. What, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? What did you, what were you going to try to do? You know, and then I can say, well, I can let you know that if you would have done this, I would have, you know, turned around and got a body lock on you or I would have done this. I would have done that. Mm-hmm. And then seeing the process in their mind go, Oh, it's not that simple. Oh, yeah. You know, I think doing that and then on top of having, you know, a program like yours. And then that's when you can you can come in with your program and be like, "Hey guys, you can come down here and get this training." You know, they can now see it, they have felt it, they felt it, and they go, "Oh, I have a I have a deficiency." Mm-hmm. It doesn't take this, long, does this it? This did not work out well. Yeah. Now I, what am I going to do to address that deficiency? Okay. Hey, you want to train? I got, you know, they can come here for jets. You can come here to work out. You can, you know, so on, so on, so on. Get the guys that information. And I think you're going to have a natural osmosis of people saying, okay. Yeah. And then you need their buy-in, right? Yes. Yeah. But then you're going to have that percentage of people like, yeah, let's go train. Go way up versus Hey, make it mandatory. Right. But like get their buy-in, yep. just make it a cultural yep. thing. Yeah. Um, so last thing I want to talk about. So law enforcement, the enforcement of laws, there's an argument <clears throat> made by many about just laws, about victimless laws. Um, if you could, uh, or had the opportunity to reform the, the, the system or the, the, the structure, the practice of law, uh, from your perspective in education, law enforcement, what would you change, if anything? What would I change? Yeah. What What laws do you think um, that we currently deal with are unjust, if any? Um, where? How do you think our justice system misappropriates time? How do you think the system could be more efficient and more just? Because I think that should be the the ultimate goal. I would think of the justice system yep. is making things more just. Yep. And uh, because of bureaucracy and, and bullshit, just like you get any time in life, that doesn't always happen. And we're n- right now, we have many, many people in jail. Um, many of them are violent offenders mm-hmm. and probably should be incarcerated. But do you think there's a better way to incarcerate them? Do you, th- do you think, I know there's other countries like 
um, Scandinavian countries that have this really wildly popular reform system in their prisons. But that's a different culture, yeah. too. That's yeah. a completely different society. What kind of holes do you see in the justice system? Um, and what, if anything, would you do to change or fix them if I gave you tyrannical power? <laughs> um, you know, that's uh, the whole thing with the laws and stuff. Do I personally believe that there's laws out there that should be changed? Probably, you know, um, but that's something that, you know, that's my personal belief, you know, and it's, and everyone's going to have their own personal beliefs on that, you know, and I'm not paid enough money or smart enough to, to change those laws, to make them work for everybody. Cause that's, that's another issue is, you know, if you change a law, are you making it work for a small group or are you making it work for the group as a whole? Is it retro? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know about that within the, cr the criminal justice system itself. You know, there are a lot of issues that need to be worked on. I, and I, I'll be the first to admit that, um, you know, once I hand someone off and I've done my part and I've done my investigation and I say, here, this is what, you know, I believe that this crime occurred and this is, this happens, mm -hmm. you know, I'm technically done until it's their time to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, once it gets to that side of the, the house, they have so many issues on that side of the house dealing with how that process works out, you know, and is it very, is it fair and just for people of different socioeconomic backgrounds? You know, from what I've seen in the news, it seems like people with a higher socioeconomic level have different accesses, better to, legal teams. They have different accesses, yeah. you know, and they seem to have different abilities. You know, I don't know that for a fact, it, it but I can just, ju but prove, can yeah. I can just from what I've seen? Yeah. There's um, so many examples where yeah. you have people of affluence just yep. skating on by that something where somebody else would have had the, yep. the key thrown away. Basically, yep. You know, so I would, I would really focus on that. I would focus on how, but I don't know how you fix that. I don't know how you. That's hard too, right? Because of the same reasons. Yeah. People are people. People are and people. The people that are embedded in that justice system have they come with their same yep. prejudices, their same stereotypes, their same preconceived notions as everybody else. You know, and I think uh, it's a reflection of society. Ultimately. I think you you run into a lot of appointee appointments versus mm. uh, elected too. Yeah. You I know, suppose that makes a big difference. The sheriff is an elected position. The chief is a, an appointed position. So who are you, who is your audience at that point? When my audience is 60,000 people that are going to elect me, I have a different, I may have a different outlook on how I'm going to do business. Sure. Versus seven people that sit on a council <laughs> that have direct control over if I get hired or fired. Yeah. You know, that have, hey, they control my salary. They control everything. So who's my audience at that point? You know, the same thing with the criminal justice side. You have a county attorney or a district attorney that's elected, and then they get to appoint people. Who's their audience? Who's the audience of that person appointed? Well, that person who's appointed is getting appointed by someone. Yeah, seems pretty loose. So, you know, I, I don't like know. a club. Kind yeah. Of. yeah. And I don't know if making more positions, elected positions, would help. I tend to believe that the more you have accountability to the public in general 
the more you're going to focus on your audience, the more you're going to focus on and having that as my goal to please versus having seven people or five people or however big your council is who may who may be completely out of touch with the overwhelming yeah, yeah. majority i think your perspective is really really important especially the time that we live in it's it's um, in my lifetime i've never felt as much division i don't think it's true i think that it's publicized yeah i think it's more uh it's more i think seen. it goes in waves yeah i think it goes in waves you know you can check out like the early 90s especially like la yep. the early 90s you know and then you had your kind of high wave and then you had a low wave and we're back up on that high wave again, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just all, all about where does it, where does it flatten out to? Yeah. What you do know? we learn from it? How do yeah. we grow from it? And, and I, th- I feel like, um, there are people out there that are recognizing issues on both sides, yep. socioeconomic issues and, uh, issues potentially in the justice system and making reforms. There's more police officers and more departments that are making this kind of ongoing training, um, either mandatory for their departments or they're just doing yeah. it. And it doesn't take long to do it, to see the benefit. Um, I've been told physically, uh, on the job and just psychologically as a way to decompress from doing something, yeah. you know, and, and doing something that has such a high relatability to the job. Yeah. Um, anything in closing, anything that you want to, uh, leave with audience or any perspective you want to leave with the audience or say, um, and then I'll get your three keys to life. You know, I think the bi- the biggest thing is like what I said in the beginning is law enforcement is encompassed by people. They're citizens. They're citizens. Yeah. They're your average person that's doing a job. You know, being critical on situations that are, you know that yes they have a tr- level of training, but it's also their citizens doing the job. Mm-hmm people are going to have good days and people are going to have bad days and people are going to react to situations positively and negatively, you know, and we have such a great hindsight now to Monday morning quarterback, all these situations. And we're, I think we're losing the human factor on a lot of this, you know, agreed. and you know, there's some great organizations out there, you know, like humanize the badge. Um, they do a great job of showing, you know, not just the, you know, the officer playing basketball with the kid in the park, but just saying, Hey, these are people, you know, they're your sons, they're your daughters. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the people out there putting the badge on and saying, I, I want to hold the line for you. I want to make sure you're safe. I want to make sure everyone's safe. And I want to make sure the society can function. Mm-hmm. So, well, like that just reminded me of something. There's people in every walk of life there there's some people that have been dealt way worse shit than I have and they've excelled on a higher level. They've become more successful. Um, the same thing is going to, uh, kind of apply in, in every field that we work yep. in. And <clears throat> we, I feel like police often and law enforcement are set this certain expectation that's inhuman yep. and, um, then they're griped about when they're expected to make very huge calls in yep. very short amount of time. So um, having that empath- empathetic approach, and there's a lot of people out there listening that will go, who the fuck is this guy to talk about empathy? To, well, hopefully by now they've been able to actually see you. That's yeah. the whole point of this podcast is that when you listen to people, you go, oh, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, instead of just text or instead of just a grainy video or a clear video. Um, but uh, if you were talking to uh, insecure Keone of my boyhood and you were trying to instill in me 
some confidence or hope or faith in my future, what would be the three takeaways of your life experience to guide me in a direction, guide me in a positive direction? I think the first one and the main one I would say is have your failures, but learn from your failures. And I think for me personally, having my failures in my life has taught me more than anything else. Um, you know, professionally, personally, it has made me the human being I am. And being able to learn from that, though, like that's the biggest key is, uh, you know, I want, like I was talking to Damien the other day, I was like, if I come to practice and I don't get tapped out, I feel like I haven't gone hard enough because I want to come into practice and try stuff and experiment. And I want people to be able to like, Oh yeah, here's an arm bar. Hey, okay. And then I can learn from that and I can say, okay, well I did this. Where do I need to go from there? Um, through, so through loss, we like whittle away yes. to the highest form of self. And yes. that's why that's it's such a pivotal thing, such an important concept in martial arts to just get a little bit better Yeah, every single day, a little bit better every single day. And I think that if you're not having failures in life, and I'm, and that's, I'm not saying going out and, you know, I guess I don't know how to put that, but... But failure. Yeah. What, failure. what is failure? Failure is perceived by some as an end. Yep. And, and then, to other people, it's... a. Uh, uh, a little bit closer yeah. to their desired yeah. result. Perfect. It's Perfect. the optimist versus the pessimist. Yep. It's the glass is half empty or the glass is half full. Embrace that failure, um, but maybe recharacterize yeah. the failure yeah. as a lesson or a part of the natural learning curve. I feel like in this, we can say that we live in an entitled, entitled yep. society. People think that you're, you only have to fail like three or four times and then you're a superstar. That, that ain't the way that shit works. Anybody of any notoriety has failed thousands of times. Yes. And the cliche is the Edison light bulb, even though Tesla's a cooler guy than Edison is. Um, but, you know, draft Tesla. but that is uh, anybody who's ever attained anything or done anything great has had to commit huge amounts of, of themselves to it. Yeah. So, um, I think number two would be... Uh, find a passion mm. um, you know in the good times and in the bad times that passion is something that can take you and keep you whole and keep you surviving and keep you going you know and you know it could be anything out there but if you have something that you're passionate about that you're something that you're going to learn that's something you're going to continue to evolve that's something that's going to keep your mind straight that's going to keep you hey I've had a really bad day I'm going to go do this yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm clear. I'm mentally clear now and I can do that. It's like a love, right? Yep. And a compass yep. to keep you pushing yep. forward. You know, and I think the last one is just embrace the grind, embrace that hard work, you know, and understand that just because I work hard, I may not achieve everything I'm, I'm mm-hmm. going for, but then with those failures, I can learn. And that goes back to that first one. But if you don't embrace that grind, and willing to put into that grind and don't assume that you're owed anything yeah right like if you work hard great you yeah. if you work you're going to learn a lesson well, yeah you're going to learn a lesson no matter what and you'll keep climbing the mountain yeah. and you'll end up at a higher place than you ever were yeah. but don't don't make the mistake of, of making an expectation that i'm going to be this just because i work hard there's a lot of people that work hard yeah you know but i'll tell you what working hard building a community, 
um, opening your doors saying, Hey, I get it. Yeah. Like it's shitty out there right now. It's shitty for, for everybody. Um, but we want to make it less shitty. Yeah. Uh, if everybody did that, um, it, we went to this place, Genesis land in Israel when Israel was open before COVID and, um, he left us this guy from Detroit that was a Jewish settler. He, he made this, this really cool place where you go and have like period dinner and stuff. And he's like, when you go back, this is what I want you to do. Just make a more honest effort to bring people into your home and yeah. break bread with them or have conversation with them. Go find people that are completely outside of your culture, your society and invite them into your home. And you're going to see that we're all exactly the same. Yep. And, the fact that we can't take these ancient truths and make them work almost to me points to uh, uh, somebody trying to get in the way, somebody trying to hold back a populace from seeing this very, very simple truth. Yeah. Um, tribalism and instinctive urges don't help, but um, uh, hopefully we're at a point in time with this information that we have and with this pseudo connectivity through the internet where people can start looking at podcasts like this and getting back to tableside conversations and going, you know what? Like, I don't like some of the things about what's going on right now and some of the things I'm seeing reported, but I watched this hour and a half podcast with this guy, Eric, who's in law enforcement, and he's proof that yeah. there's people out there that want to do the job well. They want to serve justly. And if they're out there, I can't just wildly attack um, law enforcement. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know that now, hopefully if I'm a listener to this, um, that Eric has taught me that these are all just people yeah. flawed. Some of them amazing, but people nonetheless. Yep. So awesome, brother. I appreciate it. No, appreciate it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I Thank over. you.